Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that at the instant that we put our faith alone in Christ alone, that we have eternal salvation that can never be lost, can never be taken from us. But when we sin, no matter what that sin is, whether it is small or large, that sin breaches that fellowship that we have with God as a family member. And as a result, the ongoing ministry of God the Holy Spirit in terms of producing spiritual growth is breached, it ceases, it stops, it squelched, Scripture says. And so in order to recover it, we have to confess our sins to God. This is done privately in prayer. The believer acknowledges, admits any uh, wrongdoing, any sin. And at that instant, God forgives us and cleanses us because the price has already been completely paid by Christ on the cross. So that instant we recover fellowship and our forward advance and spiritual growth continues. So we always take a few moments to have silent prayer before we begin our study of the Word to give you the opportunity to use uh, 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to uh, confess any known sins to God and thus be prepared for the study of His Word. Let's bow our heads together and after silent prayer I will open in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, you've preserved your word down through the centuries. And despite the fact that there are those who have uh, attempted to destroy your word, you have preserved it for us so that we can know with certainty that you have spoken and what you have spoken and that it is on the basis of your written revelation that we learn how to think, what to think, and that we learn who you are and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, may we be strengthened, encouraged, may we get a greater understanding of our future destiny. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, where we see the heavenly scene where God the Father is sitting upon his throne in heaven. He is seated there 
according to Revelation 5, verse 1, with a scroll in his right hand, a scroll written on the inside and back, sealed with seven seals. As I have pointed out, it is this scroll that is sealed with seven seals that is typical of a legal contract in the Roman world at this time in history. What we have seen is that this scroll is, in fact, the title deed to the planet, and it has its roots in understanding the original creation covenant God made with man to be the ruler of the earth, to be the king of the earth in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, we have the original covenant, the Edenic covenant, or the creation covenant where God creates man in his image and according to his likeness. Man is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He is set over all of God's creation. He has specific responsibilities laid out in chapter 2 that he is to guard, to keep the Garden of Eden. He is to watch over it. He is to name and identify the animals. In other words, he is to begin the process of learning, exploring, developing all of the resources that God has placed within creation. There's only one stipulation, and that stipulation was that man was not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the center of the garden. If he did so, God said that he would immediately die. That death was not a physical death, but a spiritual death, a separation from God. There was something lost at that particular time in the makeup of man, that which we call, based on New Testament scriptures, a human spirit. It was that capacity to have a relationship with God to understand his word. Therefore, man at that point became spiritually dead. All subsequent generations are born in the image of Adam and thus indicating that they are corrupted by that sin nature passed on by Adam. There was a promise made by God at that time to Adam that uh, as that <clears throat> uh, as the consequences for his sin were laid out in Genesis 3:14 through 19 we call that the Adamic covenant it's a modification of the initial uh, stipulations so that now um, the ground is going to be cursed uh, in the initial covenant man was to be fruitful and multiply now there's going to be pain and suffering for the woman in giving childbirth. The uh, ground is cursed. All of these things um, come into play as modifications of the creation covenant. But God promises redemption in that, in the midst of that covenant. Genesis 3.15, he says that the heel, I mean that the, that the seed of the serpent would uh, wound the heel of the seed of the woman but the seed of the woman would step on his head or crush his head, a picture of the ultimate defeat of the serpent, which is, of course, Satan, and that uh, the uh, stomping on the head of the serpent occurred at the cross when Christ uh, laid the groundwork for his ultimate de defeat when he was actually defeated by Christ's redemptive work on the cross. So there's embedded within Genesis 3.15 is the promise of future victory and redemption. Man continued to demonstrate his fallen nature, and as a result of that, God had to judge the human race in a worldwide flood at the time of Noah. 
And after that, God revised the covenant again. This is the Noahic covenant described in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, which is still in effect. Now, let's just summarize under about five points what took place in this period of history in relationship to understanding this title, uh, this title deed in Revelation 5.1. First of all, as we've seen, man was created as God's vice gerent to rule the planet. He's created to rule over everything as God's representative. And so everything is under man's authority. Man is represented as the king of the earth. God is viewed as the landowner but man is the chief steward who administers the planet in God's name. The purpose and the destiny, therefore, of the human race is to rule the planet. However, when Adam, point number two, when Adam disobeyed God in the garden and followed Satan, the, uh, the title of king of the earth was lost and usurped by Satan, who became the illegitimate ruler of the planet. He is referred to as the God of this age, the prince and the power of the, the air in the New Testament. As a result, Satan had to be defeated. This took place on the cross. Point number three, Satan's defeat is secured at the cross, but his final destruction awaits the return of the true king. This brings us to the most important point, and that is related to the fact that Jesus Christ is God-man. I pointed out last time that this hypostatic union, as it is called, this union of deity and humanity, that Jesus Christ is fully God. He has all of the eternal attributes of God, all of the full attributes of deity in his position as the second person of the Trinity, but he took on humanity. He became finite as a creature, so humanity is added to deity so that he could go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That fulfills the initial phase of the destruction of Satan or his, his, uh, the, the, the uh, stepping on his head. But, but Christ also redeems the planet in order to restore the kingdom to man. And he does this as the son of man and the, as the son of David. And he fulfills these covenants specifically Old Testament covenants. And we have two pictures of this in the Old Testament. The first is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is the story of the successive kingdoms of man and how they will be destroyed by Jesus Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom. And Daniel writes in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that is, an emphasis on humanity, uh, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that is, God the Father seated on his throne as the judge. This is a picture of what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 5. came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that is the giving of the scroll to the Lord Jesus Christ, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The scroll is that title deed to the kingdom. It is the opening of those seven seals 
that brings about the successive judgments that culminate in the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period to defeat the Antichrist, the false prophet, the two beasts who are the servants of Satan. He will defeat Satan, throw him, uh, bound, bind him for a thousand years in the bottomless pit and establish, and the Lord Jesus Christ will establish his thousand year uh, kingdom at that particular point. So what we see in Revelation 5 is the beginning of this action where the, the uh, giving of dominion, glory, and a kingdom takes place. This also fulfills the Davidic covenant where David was promised that his house, that is his dynasty, and his kingdom would be established forever and his throne would be established forever. Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of David, is the one who establishes that throne when he returns at the second coming. So this is what is being pictured here at the beginning of Revelation uh, chapter 5. So the scene in chapter 5 shows us, the scenes here show us the final enactment as the rightful ruler of the lion of the tribe of Judah preparing to destroy the usurper Satan. He will judge the rebels, the demons, and humans in the tribulation period and then take rightful ownership of his realm. So this is the backdrop for understanding this transaction where the title deed is given to the one who is qualified. So we saw last time that there is this angel who announces who is worthy, who's qualified, who's competent, who has the right to open the scroll or to uh, look at it. And John begins to weep uh, almost uncontrollably because he recognizes that it is the enactment of this scroll that will end and end history, will bring judgment on evil and suffering, establish the kingdom. When, it, when he thinks that there will be no one qualified, then he uh, becomes very emotional because as most of us recognize there is ongoing injustice in the world, there is unrighteousness in the world, there is undeserved suffering in the world, and yet ultimately God will make all these things right. That is the tension that John is feeling and why he breaks out weeping. He is, in the background, we hear the psalmist saying, How long, O Lord, will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And so that tension causes him to weep, but one of the elders comes to him and says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so we saw last time that this term, lion of the tribe of Judah, relates to the royal prerogative of Jesus. as announced in Genesis chapter 49 and Jacob's prophecy related to his son Judah. Then we came to verse 6, and we began to look at this third scene. Each of these scenes begin with the phrase, and I saw. Verse 1 is one scene, verse 2 is another scene, verse 6 begins this third scene of the Lamb slain. And so John looks, and we could translate that, and I saw, to make it consistent with the other, the other uh, translations. And behold, in the midst of the throne... There appears this animal in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven, eye, seven horns and seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And last time we looked at this and we said, well, we have to identify all of these players in this particular scene. And the four living creatures take us back to the scene in Revelation 4, 6, and 7. Before the throne, there's a sea of glass like crystal. It is this still sea that pictures the separation between God and his creatures. And in the midst of the throne, there are four living creatures. These are angels. They are similar to seraphs and similar to um, cherubs, and yet they are different. They represent uh, God's holiness and his righteousness. In verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. This indicates knowledge, this imagery of the eyes. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and it is and is to come. This is the backdrop for understanding what we see in 5.6. In the midst of the throne, there are the four living creatures and the elders. We'll get to the identification of the elders before we finish this morning in verses uh, 9 and 10. It stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns. Last time the, we recognized that in the scriptures, seven represents fullness Horns is a metaphor for power, indicating the omnipotence of the Lamb, part of his deity. Jesus Christ possesses and always has possessed all the attributes of deity. When he was in his humanity, he willingly limited the use of his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence in order to fulfill the mission of going to the cross and paying the penalty for sin as a man. And so here we have a reference to his deity. He has seven horns, a reference to his, the fullness of his power, his omnipotence, and seven eyes, which represent his omniscience, his knowledge. Then we have the further phrase, which are the seven spirits of God. And last time I took us to Zechariah uh, chapter uh, 4 in order to show how these things were fulfilled or are, are, are indicated in the imagery in Zechariah chapter 4, in a re recognition of the fullness of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in relationship to uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Then we, the action develops in verse 7. The Lamb has appeared, and he comes and he moves forward to the throne. He's the only one who's qualified to approach the throne. Back in chapter 4, we just read that the four living creatures are singing holy, holy, holy. And that, that concept of holiness is the idea of God's separateness, his distinctiveness. The Old Testament word, the Hebrew word translated holy is the word kadash, which doesn't mean morally pure. This isn't the same idea as righteousness. It is similar, but it is distinct. The word for uh, holiness is a word that has as its core meaning the idea of separateness. You, those who are holy are those who are separated to the service of their God, and that can apply to many different uh, deities. It's used in many different religious-type settings, both in terms of idolatry and in terms of the worship of God in the Old Testament. So the idea of separateness or distinctiveness is there. Remember, there's that separation of God from his creatures by that glassy sea, but what we see is the lamb can approach the throne. 
because the lamb is partakes of full deity in Colossians 2 7 we read that in him in Christ uh, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily so he goes forward and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and then we come to verse 8 this action then generates a response by the creatures who are uh, before the throne the four living creatures and the 24 elders 28 creatures in all fall down before the lamb now and they begin to worship the lamb another indication that Jesus Christ is full deity for throughout scripture it is prohibited for man to worship any creature so here again we have a reinforcement of the fact that he is divine that they fall down before the lamb each has a harp and golden bowls full of incest, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, this is where we get this imagery that has shown up down through the ages that when we die, we're going to go sit on a cloud and play a harp. It's not exactly what we have here, but there is this uh, representation because what we have here is a scene of singing praise to God. And so there is musical accompaniment there in heaven. The word that is translated harp is the Greek word kathara. It means a harp or a lyre. It's In fact, the English word guitar derives from this particular word, kathara, even though the modern guitar instrument is much different. Josephus describes the Hebrew harp as a ten-stringed instrument that is struck with a key or, or plucked, then there is the Greek version, which had 12 strings. The, the harp is mentioned in Revelation 5.8, also in 14.2, and in Revelation 15.2. It seems like something of an awkward image here as uh, John seems to hurry to describe all that is happening at one time. First, we have them falling prostrate in worship, and then we have that each of them is holding, it appears that each is holding something. They each have a harp and a golden bowl. The bowl is the Greek word uh, fiale, which is where we get our English word vial, derives from this word. It refers to a bowl or a basin, a vial with a wide mouth. It was used in many different types of religious settings. So it's a bowl or a libation disc that's used in religious ceremonies. And they were, uh, in fact, in, in archaeology, we've discovered a number of Greek uh, vases that have uh, depictions of people in religious settings with a harp in one hand and a libation dish in the other hand. This word appears 12 times in Revelation. In most of the other settings, it has to do with the pouring out of judgment. But here it refers to an incense uh, bowl and the smoke going up from the incense uh, represents the prayers of the saints. So this is the picture here. Now, it could be that some have harps and some have bowls, but the term each there indicates that each uh, person involved here has both of these because they involve different ty times of worship. So they're not falling down trying to hold on to everything. They're just present with each one so that they have what they need during different times of, of worship in 
heaven. So when it's time to sing, they're not singing all the time, but when it's time to sing, then they would pick up the lyre and they would play that in accompaniment to that, uh, what they were singing. At other times, the emphasis would be on the incense and the prayers going up before the Lord. So this is the picture, all of this action taking place while John is watching. Now in verse verse 9, we come to a fascinating verse that we have some technical issues with, so we're going to have to look at this in a little... Um, a little different way. As a matter of fact, it's so rare that I do this. It just occurred to me that I had not done this. So, uh, Doug, I've got about, I don't know, there's not enough of these. So take one per family. A little handout because the screen image is going to be a little tough to look at. There's a textual problem here. So we're going to have to talk a little bit about something uh, something a little different. Let me just read the verse to you. It says, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, the issue here is who is really talking here? Who is saying what when? And it's complicated because there are differences in Bibles. If you're sitting here this morning and you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, then uh, you would read along roughly what I just read to you. If you have a New American Standard or New International Version or any of an English Standard Version, any of the more contemporary translations, then you will notice that there were a couple of pronouns there that weren't quite the same as what I read to you just now. And that is because there were some differences. There were some differences in some of the Greek manuscripts on which the, these translations were based. And we have to take a little time to understand this. It will not only help us to understand how important this verse is for understanding what happens in the future, but it will also reinforce in our minds the uh, fact that we do know what the Word of God says. It's not just that there's all these different manuscripts out there and somehow just a guessing game as to what the Word of God said. There may be some variations, but we, it doesn't leave us in doubt as to what God said. The most common interpretation among dispensationalists of this passage is that the, uh, or excuse me, the most common interpretation that you'll find across the board is that these 24 elders are angels. That is one, a, a conclusion to which many people move. And if you, do, if you have um, one of the modern translations, NASB or NIV, it will indicate that. And if you look at it, as you look at the handout I just gave you, I have on the screen here the New American Standard on the left saying, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain didst purchase for God with thy blood. What? Men. Notice, I have men underlined. It's in italics, which means it's not in the, there's no word to correspond to it in the original. 
New American Standard says that you redeemed men. And so the picture here is as the angel singing to God that you provided redemption for mankind. Now, look at the middle column. Middle column, we don't have you have redeemed men, but it says you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now, if angels are singing, then that would not be right because angels were not redeemed by the death of Christ on the cross. So you see, if you're reading a New American Standard NIV, something like that, you're going to be led to the conclusion this passage is that these two verses, you have the angels singing, and so the 24 elders would be angels. But if you have a King James Version, New King James, you'd look at it and say, hmm, must not be angels, must be human beings that are singing this. And so there's a a bit of a conflict there. So we have to understand what's behind this. The most common interpretation, as I said, is that these 24 elders are angels. However, a majority of dispensationalists believe that the 24 elders are representatives of the church. And we have to get to the bottom of this because this is very important. Who is singing here? These human beings are angels. Now, the difference in the interpretation here isn't based on theological assumptions, but it's based on this problem uh, related to what is called textual criticism. Textual criticism is when there are some variants in the original languages, in the original manuscripts. Some manuscripts uh, have one thing, other manuscripts have something else, and so you have to decide, well, what did the original say? Now, some people say, well, how do you do that? It must be just a guessing game. No, it's, it's, it's not a guessing game. It's a very scientific procedure. And let me give you an analogy. You can think back to when you were in elementary school, probably, if you graduated, that is, when they still taught things in school. And uh, <clears throat> you remember when uh, you had dictation in spelling classes. And so the teacher would read to you a letter, and everybody in the class was to write down what they heard, and then it would be graded on spelling. Well, let's say I were to read a couple of verses to you, and everybody had to write down what I read, and then I lost the original. And all we had was some 90 or 100 copies of what I dictated. Now, there might be some mistakes among those 90 or 100 copies. Some people may have reversed a couple of words. Some people may have left a word out. Some people may have added a word. Now, you can still reconstruct what the original was by comparing those 90 to 100 copies and, and determining which was the original. And that's the process of, of textual criticism, and it's practiced in, in the study of almost any ancient manuscript for which we do not have the original. If you're studying uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, if you're studying even medieval writers like Bonaventure or Thomas Aquinas, they have... Uh, they have text. They have critical versions of those texts where they list all down in the bottom margin all of the different variants. I have a slide to show you what that looks like at the bottom margin of a Greek New Testament. See, that just looks like a bunch of little uh, scribble to most of you, but though each each thing represents a, 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 excuse me is an abbreviation that means something. The first word there, or the first little symbol that you see in the upper left-hand corner, uh, means that um, this word is added in 
some manuscript. And that word that's there is the first person plural pronoun, which means us. And so what this recognizes is that in some versions the uh, pronoun us is added, and this is seen in just a few versions in the Vulgate and in Irenaeus. The IR stands for one of the church fathers, uh, Irenaeus. Now the next line tells us that in other manuscripts, instead of having uh, you have redeemed uh, us to God, it reverses it and says you have redeemed to God us in that order. So the us is still there. And that would be in uh, Codex Sinaiticus. That's what that Hebrew letter stands for. It's Codex Sinaiticus. And then the numbers there represent uh, different papyri. And then you have Hippolytus and Cyprian. Those are other church fathers. And that old English-looking M there represents the majority text. And then you have certain Latin versions. And then in the last line, it says the text, just as it is, that is in the, in the critical text, you have it only in, represented in one manuscript, uh, ancient manuscript, and that stands for um, uh, Codex Vaticanus. It's A. So that, that gives you that information. And so whenever uh, you're studying in the Greek text, you always need to take a look at whatever these textual variants are and just do a little work in textual criticism. So what does all of this mean? Well, to make sure you understand what I'm saying, we have to understand a little bit about the history of how we got our Bible today and a little bit about some, um, uh, some basic terms. We use one term that's the phrase textus receptus. That's Latin for the received text. The textus receptus derives from a Greek, Greek uh, New Testament that was put together by a very famous scholar just prior to the Reformation and overlapping into the Reformation by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. He was... Uh, from Rotterdam. He was a scholar who taught there. His dates were 1466 to 1536. He was an opponent of Luther's. When Luther wrote his famous book, The Bondage of the Will, he wrote it against Erasmus. But Erasmus was a Greek scholar, and there weren't any Greek texts published at that time. Remember, Wittenberg just put together the, the uh, printing press about 50 years before, so there's no printed Greek text for scholars to use. And so he had seven Greek manuscripts available to him of the New Testament. None of them was complete. All of them were considered inferior. And nevertheless, he relied mostly on two of the seven. And he was under pressure from his publisher, publishers like that, to crank this thing out in seven months. And he had to do it all by hand. There weren't any computers. There weren't any typewriters. And so he had to do it all by hand. And he made a host of errors. In fact, this Greek New Testament goes through a number of revisions over the next 30 or 40 years before it's uh, finally finalized. It's, um, in fact, the printer did, did not accept all of Erasmus's corrections. And sometimes he inserted some of his own corrections. As a result, several errors entered into the text. Some verses entered into the text that weren't there in the original at all. And uh, at other times, words entered into the text that were not contained in any other 
Greek manuscripts, so that causes a bit of a problem. In 1633, some three years before Erasmus's death, uh, Elzevir public, the Elzevir edition of the Greek New Testament was published, and this was the first one that was called the Received Text. And so it is on the basis of these seven manuscripts, primarily two of them, that the Received Text, the Textus Receptus, or the TR, is based. And this Greek edition uh, reached its final form and then became the basis for the King James Version of 1611. So when you think about the King James Bible, it is based on the TR, which relies primarily on two manuscripts with a little help from some others. In fact, the the last six verses of Revelation weren't in any of these manuscripts that that, uh, Erasmus had, so he had to back-translate it into Greek from the Latin. Makes it real real reliable. There were other verses that were uh, inserted that weren't in any other verses. So there are some basic problems with the Textus Receptus. Now, over the subsequent centuries, we're talking about the 1500s, over the subsequent centuries, several other, a number of other manuscripts have been discovered. And in the 19th century, there was just a lot of discovery made. And four manuscripts specifically were discovered. And these all came out of northern Africa. One is called Codex Alexandrinus. There was Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and uh, another papyri numbered P46. All of these date to the late 3rd and 4th centuries, so they are quite a bit older than the TR. Most of those, those seven manuscripts I talked about that Erasmus used date from the 11th to the 14th century. So some of these manuscripts that we discovered in the 19th century were 800 to 1,000 years older. And because of that, and because of that discovery, there was a massive revision in the 19th century of our understanding of the history of the transmission of the text. And scholars began to grapple with this whole issue of how to figure out the original reading when you had these variations. One of the first uh, really solid attempts to try to articulate a procedure to resolve the problems was, were, were produced by a couple of Anglican scholars, brilliant men, uh, B.F. Westcott and Hort, and it became known as the Westcott-Hort view. And that's still, in, in an edited version, is still the dominant view that uh, most scholars uh, take today, and it basically uh, uh, assumes that older is better. Now, let me tell you, if I've got a 4th century manuscript and, and it's a bad copy and I find it, is that going to be better than a 10th century copy that is an accurate copy of a 3rd century? Okay? Well, even though 10th century isn't as old as 4th century, it's based on a better original. So uh, newer isn't always worse. Older isn't always better. But that's a dominant view that has governed textual criticism for the last hundred years or so. And usually this is referred to as either the critical text, and it's found in the United Bible Societies or UBS text of the Greek, or the Nessel-Aland version, NA27. Those of you who um, have Logos or one of the other programs usually have an NA27. That's the 27th edition of the Nessel-Aland text in your computer. Now, in recent years, since World War II, another, th- another view has developed called the majority text view. 
And the majority text view basically thinks that the majority of documents, the reading that's in the vast majority of doctors, now we have close to 5,000 uh, either incomplete to complete copies of the New Testament. And so the majority text view says that the majority, what it, the, the reading found in the majority of documents is the correct view. Now, there's a lot of details here I'm certainly not going to go into uh, this morning, but that will help you understand why I have three columns here. There's no, one thing to note, there is no English translation based on the majority text. Number two, the majority text is very close to the TR, but there are over 1,800 differences between the majority text and the TR. Number three, in the book of Revelation, the majority text usually agrees with the critical text instead of the textus receptus. It's a, it's a superior reading. And then a couple of other things you should note is that the critical text version, that, you, that if I picked up my Greek New Testament critical text and had that, that what the, the wording that's in those 27 books isn't found in any manuscript in the ancient world. Not one. It's a conflation of a lot of different things. So if you're dealing with the majority text, there are ancient manuscripts that read just exactly like the majority text reads. So I am a firm believer in the majority text as a better reading. Now, when it comes to this passage, having said all of that and giving us a little understanding so we understand what the Textus Receptus is, we understand what the critical text is, what that term means, anyway. And now we understand what majority text means. Notice in verse 9, when it comes down to that crucial section right in here, the NASB, the critical text, says that, <clears throat> inserts the word men. That is only based on one manuscript. What's the difference here? The difference is that in one manuscript, Codex A, it omits the word us completely. But us either follows to God or comes before to God in every other manuscript. But it's omitted from one, and these scholars come along and put so much weight on that one that despite the fact that every other manuscript that we have has the word us in it, they take it out. I mean, this really isn't even a debate between the majority text and the critical text. It just, it's, it, in, in some ways, this is influenced by theology because if these are men that are singing this praise, these are human beings singing this praise to God that you have redeemed us, they couldn't figure out how they got there. What are all these human beings doing in heaven at the beginning of the tribulation? It's because they got raptured. So if you don't have a doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, you can't figure out why these human beings are in heaven at this stage and why they're wearing crowns and resurrection bodies and everything else. So the majority text has verse 9 reading, You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That agrees with the King James Version or New King James Version, the Textus Receptus. But in verse 10 the majority text agrees with the critical text. It seems like it goes on to say, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to our God. Now, it shifts from us. Uh, 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 it says our God. You have made us kings and priests to our God. And the um, 
New King James. Now, what's going on here? It led to a lot of confusion. Those of you who were here last year at the Chafer Conference, Dr. Niemela presented an excellent paper on this. A couple of years before that, uh, Jeremy Thomas, who's pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church, presented a, paper, same, a similar paper at the um, uh, Conservative Theological Society in the summer 2005. The best way to understand this is what's going on in verses 9 and 10 when it talks about they sang a new song is it's talking about as if I'm talking to this whole congregation, I said they, they sang. But see, sometimes you have parts to songs, don't you? And so when we sing a particular hymn and there is a lady's part and there is a man's part, well, I would still refer to the whole congregation singing even though one group may be singing one thing and one group singing something else. In the ancient world, it was, especially in, in, in the uh, temple worship in the Old Testament, psalms were often sung antiphonally. You would have one group that would sing one phrase and another group that might sing the whole thing. You saw that as far back as uh, Exodus chapter 14 when the Jews came out of Egypt. The men sang uh, the primary part there in that victory hymn, and it was Miriam and the women who sang the chorus. And so you have two parts going on here, and that's what you have here, is on one side you have the 24 elders who were singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, term referring often to the church. And then it's answered by the four living creatures and the angels who say, yes, and you have made them, referring to the 24 elders, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So you see, you handle the, the problem is easily handled by understanding this to be an antiphonal response. Now, there are some questions that are usually raised, and I want to try to answer some of these. First of all, we have to understand that the that even though the 24 elders are always grouped with the four creatures who are angels before the throne of God, that doesn't mean they have to be classified as angels. In many of the scenes in Revelation, the lamb is present also, but the lamb obviously is not an angel either. Second, the elders offer bowls of incense at prayer, which represents prayer, as do the angels. But angels are not the only ones who are involved in intercessory prayer. Human beings have been involved in intercessory prayer down through, through uh, the ages. In fact, there's one scene in Revelation where the, pray, the incense or the prayers of the saints going up. So that would handle that situation. Some people say that, well, in this case, you have an elder back in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, you have an elder giving revelation. Uh, as an agent of revelation. And in re the book of Revelation, it looks as if angels are the agents of revelation. However, throughout history, human beings have been the agents of revelation. The prophets, the apostles, those who wrote scripture were all human beings. So just because elders and several times in the book of Revelation give information to John, it doesn't violate any standard or any practice. Uh, those are just some of the answer, some of the observations here. Another thing that we need to observe is that in Daniel chapter seven, which is what I referred to earlier in the Son of Man episode, 
In Daniel chapter 7, just prior to the verse that I read to you earlier, we have a, uh, an, an, another verse. At the end of that vision in Daniel 7 verse 9, Daniel observes, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. But see, there's none on the, on, sitting on, the th- on those thrones. No one sits on those thrones that are around the throne of God until the 24 elders show up in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. These 24 elders wear white garments, as we see later on in Revelation, which depicts the white garments that are given to the overcomers, as we studied in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. And then finally, the 24 elders wear Stephanos crowns. A Stephanos crown was like the wreath that was given to the victors in the Olympic Games. The crowns that are promised to believers are Stephanos crowns, not diademos crowns. A diadem crown was a crown of ruling authority, the crown a king would wear. But a Stephanos crown is the crown a victor would wear, someone who was victorious in the games. So the picture here is that these 24 elders are redeemed men singing praise to God for having redeemed them. So let's put this together in terms of our prophetic panorama. We're in the church age, and the church age ends with the rapture of the church to heaven. And immediately following that, we have an event that takes place called the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know how long that takes. It's in heaven. It's timeless, so it's not related to the time factors on earth. But it is obviously completed by the time we have our scene in chapter 5 when the Lamb takes the scroll to enact the judgments at the beginning of the tribulation period. So the judgment seat of Christ takes place uh, from a human perspective almost uh, immediately, there's some time gap between the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation. Remember, in Daniel 9, the tribulation begins with the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and the nation Israel. So not, it's not the rapture that begins the tribulation. It is the signing of that peace treaty. So there's a gap of time. could be months, could be a few years. We don't know. The judgment seat of Christ is completed, and at the beginning of the tribulation, we see the raptured, resurrected, rewarded church-age believers in heaven before the throne of God as the Lamb goes forward to take the seal. The question is, is are you ready for that event? It could happen at any moment. This is the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture. At any moment, Jesus Christ can return in the clouds for his church to take us to heaven. If you, you have to get ready by two means. First, You have to get ready by trusting Christ as your Savior. Scripture makes it very clear that we cannot gain any approval to God on the basis of our own morality. It is completely impossible. Man can never be good enough. He uh, isn't infused with righteousness. He isn't infused with goodness. He is imputed. He receives imputed righteousness. This is what the Scriptures refer to as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. At the instant you and I put our faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father judicially decrees that you have the righteousness of Christ. You're not going to be any better 
five minutes after you trust Christ than you were five minutes before you trust Christ. It's not infused morality. Then nothing changes except that you are born again after you're justified and you receive a new human spirit, that which was lost when Adam sinned. You receive that new human spirit, but you have uh, you are covered by the righteousness of Christ. But you do not become, your sin nature doesn't become limited. Uh, that's not what regeneration is. Regeneration is you receive something is born, something is given birth to. That's the concept of being born again. Something that wasn't there is now there. And that is this thing we call the human spirit. That's which restores capacity to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of God. We also receive the Holy Spirit, but that's distinct from regeneration. So we are justified. We are declared just by God on the basis of what Christ did on the cross and on the basis of receiving his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he's not looking at our sin. He is looking at Christ's righteousness and declares us to be righteous. It has nothing to do with our goodness, our badness, our sin, our lack of sin. It has everything to do with the possession of Christ's righteousness. That is what distinguishes Protestant theology from Roman Catholic theology, is that God does everything and we do nothing. And salvation is by faith alone. It's not faith plus works, faith plus any kind of obedience. It is, it is faith alone in Christ alone, nothing else. And so this is why they sing praises to God or to the, to the Lamb because you were slain and you have redeemed us to God. You have purchased us. You have paid the price. We can't add to it. The price is paid in full. We can't come along and add something to it. If I were to go out to lunch with you and you were to get up at the end of the meal and go to the restroom and I grabbed the check and paid the check in full, you couldn't come back and add anything to it. It's done. It's an accomplished trans transaction. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. When Jesus Christ finished paying for the sins of the world in those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m., he announced uh, to Telestai, it is finished, a perfect tense infinitive there indicating completed action that would go on for eternity. We cannot add a thing to it by our obedience, by our works, by anything. It is all or nothing. Either Jesus Christ did it all or you're not getting salvation. You can't add to it. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1, is that anyone who preaches a different gospel, that you do anything to add to the work of Christ, destroys the gospel. He says, let them be completely accursed. If it's faith plus works, the works always cancel the faith. The works always cancel your trust in Christ if you add anything because you're not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in something else, the works, the ritual, the church attendance, the giving, whatever it is, your morality. But see, we have to recognize there's nothing, not one thing in us that deserves salvation. It's what Christ did. It's Christ's righteousness, and it's on that basis that God blesses us. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the completed work of Christ on the cross, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the one and he alone who can pay 
for our sin. He alone is the one who uh, took that upon himself on the cross and paid the penalty in full for us, that all we have to do, all that is left to do, is simply to accept that transaction on our behalf, to trust in him, to rely upon him exclusively. And at that instant, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal salvation that can never be taken from us. That transaction that occurs at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, when Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us, is irreversible. And what happens along with that? Uh, Regeneration. Uh, All the other aspects of our new life in Christ, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, our identification uh, with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. All of these things occur in a moment of time, and yet they are in effect for eternity. We become new creatures in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not saved, who's never put their faith alone in Christ alone, who's never recognized that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sins, that this would be their opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone, to trust him, to rely upon him. The instant you put your faith in Christ, at that moment, God the Father imputes to you Christ's righteousness, declares you just, and you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might be reminded that we have received that and we have to get ready for the rapture, that we are to be prepared to meet our judge, that the life after salvation is very important for you have called us to grow spiritually and to imitate you in our life. And so we too have a responsibility to grow, to advance, and to be prepared for our future destiny to rule and reign with Christ on the cross as kings and priests. Now, Father, as we conclude this worship this morning, we pray that you would be honored, glorified in our thinking as we continue to think through what your word has taught us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.